Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we've got an exciting innovation episode for you. For our third quarter innovation show, we have as our guest Dick Alexander, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Transdev, the world's largest public transportation contractor that's privately owned. He uh, is um, a good friend of mine as well. We've worked together over the years as competitors and as collaborators. Dick Alexander talks about the history of contracting here in the U.S. as his role in many different companies kind of walks us through and navigates uh, the past and our interactions uh, at Georgetown Shuttle and Yellow Transportation well over a decade ago. It's interesting. He talks about how he kind of became the CEO of Transdev and how the private contractor's role in public transportation is even adapting, especially now in this COVID world, post-COVID world. He believes that uh, changing work patterns are going to flatten the peaks, and we talk about that and how that can help transit and how the role is really changing from um, one which has been seen uh, really as a subsidized service to now more of a public utility model um, and uh, how private contractors and the new North American Transit Alliance fit into that picture. We also talk about European models and kind of uh, taking the public-private partnership, the P3 model, that's used here in North America for capital projects, how that can even be used in operating models for public transportation contract and all that and more on this great wide ranging, but in-depth interview with one of the top leaders in our industry, Dick Alexander, chairman of the North American Transit Alliance and CEO of Transdev. All that on this episode of Transit Unplugged. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals in North America. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening around the transit industry with top newsmaker interviews. And today we're excited to be with Dick Alexander, who is Chief Executive Officer of Transdev. Dick, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Yeah. Dick and I go way back, well over a decade, when we both uh, met early on in this industry. And I met you, Dick, when I was at Yellow Transportation. Yeah, Yellow Transportation. And actually, I think, I don't know if it was before or after that, we were fierce competitors. I think you were maybe with Laidlaw at the time or Dave Systems. I can't even remember. But That's right. I was with Laidlaw. And so who were you with at that time? I was with uh, ATE at that time. Oh, uh, yeah. I loved ATE. That was a great company, man. It's a wonderful uh, company. Bill yeah. Ringo in that crowd. It was, oh, uh, yeah. It was yeah, kind so, of the star of the industry. That's right. You were. Yeah. So why don't we start off there? I mean, everybody knows Transdev still, aren't you guys still probably the biggest transportation company in the world? We are, depending on how you measure it, because there's a lot of kind of semi-private companies that are, are, are quote, private, but they're state-owned. But oh, yeah. as, as privately owned companies, yes, we are. I thought so. Yeah, yeah. So you go from CEO of uh, this part of the largest company in the world, but tell us how you started, like where you're from. And I mean, just about everybody in the business knows you. I think you have the, one of the most recognizable faces and names in the industry. You've been around a long time. And you're one of the really good guys that really care, that are nice and friendly. And having been a lot of time in business development, you've had interaction with tons of people across the industry. But tell us how you got started and where you ended up, how you ended up where you're at today. Sure. So I started off in planning school, really, University of Cincinnati and urban planning and design. It was a design school. So it was as much urban design as it was planning. But it was a co-op program. 
and a five-year program, and you every other quarter would, would go work. Got a job with Queen City Metro, it was called at that time in Cincinnati, oh, yeah. and started off kind of being a planner with, with Queen City Metro on my work quarters. Did a few other projects for them, like uh, riding buses for 10 hours straight, counting people, getting on and off stops. This is before you had any any technology whatsoever. Sure. Create the big brown sheets. Those are old enough to remember brown sheets and the cutting and pasting of this stuff. But really kind of got the transit bug from that. And at that time, the system was managed by ATE. Did not join ATE right away, but after I graduated, went to Nashville. I worked for Harville Williams down there and started in the planning department, moved into the scheduling department. I, I just always had a fascination for scheduling and did that for a number of years and then joined ATE in Indianapolis as part of the management team in, in Indianapolis. Worked there for a while, heading up the scheduling department, paratransit department, left the company to go do a startup, a company called Door-to-Door Transportation, which was running, it was really kind of the, the predecessor to, to Uber Lyft it was it was shared ride. If you think of it as Uber pools with vans, okay. shared ride, on demand services, and we we had kind of two pieces of business. One was to airports. We did airport transportation in Cincinnati. And we also did city to city, so you could get picked up at your door in Cincinnati, dropped off the door where you're going in Cleveland or Columbus or some other place. Grew like crazy for two years and then completely collapsed. That, that was probably my best learning experience. I learned all about things like cash flow and the cost of growth. And it was a hell of a lot of fun. Ended in, in a weird way, uh, kind of a, a hostile takeover of the company. Oh, wow. and, um, and so left there and actually rejoined ATE after that. And was working with one other, two other people within ATE starting this new concept called transit contracting. And as you back then, it was mostly a transit management company. And they had 50, 60 transit management contracts. And later, uh, we, we started that business. I remember the day that the transit contracting revenue surpassed the transit management revenue. It was kind of revolutionary. And that company it was just like a whole change that, that saw the direction. Worked for ATE for years. ATE went through many, many variations. It got sold to riders, so it was rider ATE for a while. Then later got sold to First Transit, First Group. Was with First Group for the first six months of that transition. Left the group at that point and started my own consulting work. I started with just a lot of different small projects. And uh, one of those projects was starting the Georgetown connector service. I was working for the, the Georgetown bid and we're selecting a contractor to run some service that connected Georgetown to the metro station. And I chose a company called Yellow Transportation to be the provider of that. I did not know Yellow at the time, but Mark Joseph, who was president of, of Yellow at the time, thought I showed great judgment picking his company, of course. Uh, and, and started doing a little bit of consulting for Yellow. Yellow at the time got bought by Connex, which was a big French consortium owned by, by Veolia Environment. So ended up joining that group, became Connex, Connex Yellow, and Connex TCT, and then Connex uh, changed to Veolia Transportation. Veolia Transportation 
then spun off and merged with TransDev to then become TransDev, which is the company today. So been with that group now for, for 18 years, mostly in business development. We grew the company from, I think when I started, we're at four, 40 million in revenue annually. When I left the BD group, we're at 1.3, 1.4 billion. So it was it was a huge ride, just kind of the growth of the company. We merged with, we bought ATC, which was another you know, major competitor to ATC yeah. the day. Terry and, Vanderay. Terry Vanderay. And, and yeah. uh, this was actually, Terry had actually left, then he came back again, left again. It's been fun. It's just been this, this huge, huge ride. So, and then of, of late, gotten in some interesting things. I really started to get into the AV world and doing AV shuttles that, you know, you, you see these low-speed shuttles, but but that evolved into something even bigger, which we now started a whole new division called TransDev Alternative Services, TAS, which I became president of. And it, it's a, a service for which we have one client, which is Waymo. And we are the operating arm for Google's Waymo operation for autonomous vehicles. So we have uh, over a thousand employees operating autonomous vehicles, Phoenix, Bay Area, and now doing some with trucks as well. So kind of the brave new world of, of where this you know, industry might be evolving to and trying to always look to the future. We had a, a departure of our CEO back in March. And so I was appointed in the CEO role as an interim CEO. And that was interesting as well because Got appointed on Tuesday, and the COVID crisis officially hit that Thursday. And oh, was like immediately in in crisis mode at that point, just trying to get our hands around what was going on, and literally had a war room. And every day, talking to our field, talking to our other executives, coordinating what was going on in in Europe, and just fighting the battle of getting PPEs for our employees and really trying to track what was going on on in the ground, just fighting that, which was kind of the genesis of, of MATA at that point in the North American Transit Alliance. So it's it's been it's been really interesting. <laughs> it's wow. never a dull moment, which is what I always loved about this industry, because it 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 changes, the opportunities change, and it's infectious. I don't I don't think anybody grows up saying, I want to get in the bus business. It's like somehow you get hooked in it. And, and you stay. And once you're in, you're in. So yeah, um, yeah. it's been fun. That's great, Dick. What a, what a great retrospective of the whole contracting world. There's tens of thousands of people involved in it. And we used to say there's like 200 of us that just circle around between all the companies, you know. I mean, you've What's got great people. fun, too, just in, to, the fact that the industry is small enough that everybody. And, yeah. and that's a fun part of this industry. And I think what's fun about it now, what's more exciting now is, is technology now plays such a huge role in transit that we're getting all these just young, smart, bright people in the industry. You know, I I became a scheduler back in the in the 80s because everybody was dying off. <laughs> and it was just like there was nobody getting into that. And, and I started with Ruckus, the, the original run cutting that it took a mainframe and, and 48 hours to produce a solution. And then if you had you know, one digit wrong somewhere, you had to do it all over again. And to see where it is now and just to see how people just have flocked to this industry. Mobility is becoming such a big issue in, in urban development. We're becoming more and more an urban country. 
And so there's just a lot, of, lot more interest in mobility and technology is bringing a lot of young, young people into the field. So I, I wish I had another 50 years to spend in this in- industry because it's just going to be interesting where it goes. Yeah. So out of that whole time that we talked through your career, have you stayed in Cincinnati as your base, your home base where you live and everything? Yeah. After I left Indianapolis, I've been been there. And as some people would, I, I whenever I see uh, Robert Smith, who many of you probably know, he would always yell at me every time I see him. He says, it's not fair. The rest of us had to move 20 times. You know, <laughs> That's right. How come you got to stay in Cincinnati the whole time? And for me, the trade-off was I always traveled and I would be on the road every week. I, and I do mean every week. Oh, yeah. And I, I, early on in my career said, why, why would I uproot my family, plop them down in a strange city and then keep travel every week? So kind of my deal with the family is, you know, you travel as much as you want, but we're staying here. And, and I've been fortunate to have good employers that, that understood that and, and we're good with it. So that's good. I mean, even now you're, you're, you're talking to me from your office in Chicago, right? Or outside Chicago. Yep. yep. Yeah. So, so how long of a trip Cincinnati's is about a five hour drive. So okay. I can uh, stay off the airplane still during the COVID okay. and, and I drive up here and our office is pretty much in shutdown. We're all working from home. We have a, a cap of only 30 people allowed in the building at any one time, but people are mostly working from home. And quite frankly, it's working pretty well. You know, Teams, Zoom, cameras, whatever, is has uh, really upped their game very quickly in response to all this. And, and it works really well. I'll have a meeting with uh, 150 of our leading managers in the country and, and we'll do it. And we had a, a happy hour the other day that participated in and uh, had some fun and games with it and just trying to keep people connected. And it's worked pretty well. Not ideal. And I don't like it, but, but it's doable. So. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about that for a minute to get a little conceptual. I mean, this, this is part of the concern people have with commuter bus and commuter train coming back, right? Is that a lot of the white collar workers or people that live in the suburbs that are driving into urban areas may have decided, you know what? I don't need to do that every day anymore. What are your thoughts on that about the kind of changing, shifting work modes that people are having going forward? What do you see? You know, it's interesting because I, I liken it to a 9-11. And if you recall when 9-11 hit, just the whole world changed after that. Travel changed. It stopped for a while. And, and I remember back then, everybody was like, okay, so what, what of all these changes is going to stay and what will go back to whatever the normal is? You know, right. what stayed were the security lines and, and the restrictions mm-hmm. on what you bring on planes. But a lot of things did go back to the old ways of it. Transit right now through COVID is kind of the same thing. It's like, what, what of all this sticks and what, what doesn't? I'm of the opinion that work patterns will will permanently change. I I think people have learned that working from home works and that connectivity through through, uh, cameras works. I look at like our business in California and Google just announced that they're going to continue work from home for the next year. I mean, that's huge. And we've had a number of other other tech companies do the same. And I think that they have discovered that while they were really into promoting these kind of wallless offices and, you know, nobody has a, has a desk, you just kind of move around and whatever. Now with social distancing, that's a problem. I used to complain in our office because we have these, these cubicles with these high walls on it. I never liked the high walls. Well, now, thank God we have high walls in our cubicles. Yeah. Yeah. 
people can can work relatively safety safely in it. So so I think the work patterns will change and and that will change our volumes. I th- I think that has some benefit because I think it will flatten our peaks and that's yes. always been the expensive part of transit is right. providing that that last bus in a in a peak hour, most unproductive part of the service. So so that's good. We we used to try to get people to to extend flex time and things like that. Well, now flex time just happened. In a day, it just happened. Yeah. And I think that pattern will, will stay. And I could be like totally wrong in this, but I think the other thing is how we measure the value of transit will change. And what I mean by that is we all used to live by things like fare box recovery ratio. Well, I'm not sure that's as, as important anymore. I think we're going to start measuring our success by by broader goals, access to jobs, accessibility, urban development, it'll be much more mobility measures than financial measures. Because I I think that the financial picture of transit will probably be worse. It will require more subsidy, at least over the next decade. And so it's going to be seen more as the public public utility that it always was, but was never recognized. I think yes. there's a holdover from the private days when it used to be able to be a private concern. And it was very, people kept kept that, even though all the private companies went broke back in the, the you know, 60s and 70s, and the public had to step in and, and make public transit public. I think I think we're finally kind of maybe dropping that veil of somehow being uh, a profit-making business. I mean, I still today have neighbors or whatever that don't understand the fact that that transit is a subsidized service. So I think I think we will change change our language a bit as to how we value what we do. And I think that's a good thing. You, you see it a lot. I, I think some parts of the country have already been there. But I think it'll it'll spread nationally. That's really good. That's a v- very interesting uh, perspective on things. And that's a good segue to talk about what do you see as the role of private contractors in this new model of uh, of moving away from, like you said, focus on fare box recovery, maybe more of a public utility model. We've, we're hearing from leaders in San Francisco and Denver and other places saying, hey, because of the fiscal crisis that's been come our way through uh, COVID-19, we may have to cut routes permanently. So what's the role of the private contractor in this new world? I, I think it's... I, I think in a bigger picture way, I, I think what private contracting's role is going to be is the the agility to 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 change and innovate and provide a different product for different situations. And what the private sector does very well is being able to implement change and do it quickly and efficiently. And I think private operators bring that to the table. I think we're going to move from being transit organizations to mobility organizations. And I think mobility by its very nature involves public and private solutions. It's not a one size fits all. And so the, the Uber lifts in the world, the the vias of the world, the transdev and first transits of the world, all will have a role to play in this kind of new microcosm of, of mobility. 
and and what I think the role of private contracting will be will, to help bring that change and bring it quickly. Because because what what we do well is is we have this this wide universe, many of us globally, of of having tried things and failed at things and been successful at things, and then sharing that knowledge and bringing that that to clients that are looking for different kind of solutions and different kind of applications. And we're all pretty agnostic about the technology we use. We've all developed some of our own technology where we can fill in the gaps where maybe the market doesn't do that. And being operators, we're very nuts and bolts oriented as to what we need to make things work well. And so you add that agility to kind of the economy of scale that we have as being large companies and being able to bring that buying power to it. And then more importantly, I think there's this kind of pooling of technical resources. I always say that that whether you're running a, a 40 bus system or a 4,000 bus system, you need all the same parts and pieces. You, know, you still have to maintain a bus. You still need technology. You still need to figure out how to collect a fare. You still need to have environmental stewardship. You still need the, the same level of training. It's just a different scale. And there's so many systems. If you're in New York City, MTA, you've got those resources. You're a huge behemoth of an organization. You've got all that technical talent internally because you need it all. It's 100% dedicated to what you do. The real challenge, I think, are the, the, the 100 bus systems and the 200 bus systems that have the need because it's just what transit takes to implement, but they don't have all the technical resources. What we are able to do, I think on the private side is is pool those resources to have a technical resource group that can you know bring in an environmental person to a project for a week, a month, every other day, whatever it is, and then bring them out again and use them elsewhere and provide that location what they need to run efficiently and legally and everything else without burdening it with a lot of overhead staffing and positions. So that pooling of of technical resources, I think, is great. And and that also then kind of creates greater efficiency because we can we can share those costs amongst many projects, which we call overhead, and pull those resources as needed. I, I may need a labor resource in a project because I'm negotiating a contract. I don't need a full-time labor person sitting at that location 365 days a year. So, so being able to bring that in and out. And then innovation, global best practices, all, all those things, I think, come to bear. So I, so I think there's a really strong role for the private sector to participate in public transit. It is public transit. So policy is set by the public entity. And our role really is to implement that policy as best possible. Uh, most efficiently, most creatively as possible. And I think we're about 20% of the services out there are provided by the private sector. And I think we've had an important role. And I think that role will grow, not decline over time. But I think that role will will change what we do. And I think that's why things like like getting into autonomous vehicles or getting into mobility as a service platforms is also so critical because at some point, some of these will come to fruition as as being some mainstays of some some systems. 
That's interesting. You mentioned earlier that earlier in your career, you worked for a company that primarily focused on management contracts, which is just when they provide the top few people. And I know TransDev still has some of those. There was a company called McDonald Transit that was acquired by RATP Dev that that still focuses on that. We just interviewed Arnaud Legrand for an upcoming episode, and he talked a lot about that. So those are two models here in the U.S., so in your role as chairman of NADA and my role as executive director, you and I recently had a conversation with Mohammed Mezgani, who is head of UITP, and we were discussing with him, there's even another model. There's models that are over in Europe that are even different than those, and I think TransDev actually participates in some of them. Can you tell us some about what other models of contracting there are? I mean, in this period of great change, I think people are looking for whatever works. Yeah, the European model has a different approach towards the private sector. And it's it's an approach I would love for some systems in the U.S. to to, to adopt. Their approach to it is, you know, they'll say they'll they'll say to the private contractors competing for service, they'll say, we have a budget of X. We we have a hundred million dollars. That's what we have to spend. And what I want you as a private company is to come to us and tell me what do I get for a hundred million dollars? What are the services going to look like? What level of service are you going to operate? What are you what are you going to predict the fair recovery is going to be? And by the way, you're going to take the risk for that fair so that you, you're motivated to market the service and to operate as efficiently as possible and to find customers. And so it becomes a competition of ideas. In the US, we're still pretty much price focused. And in many projects have a kind of how low can you go price attitude of, of saying, if, if you can do it for $50 an hour and you can do it for $49 an hour, I want the $49 one because I'm giving you a very prescriptive set of what I want you to do. And then that's it. I'm going to draw a box around that scope. The European model is, is opposite of that. And so it, it does become a competition of ideas. What the benefit is to the public entity often is they get this huge amount of free consulting. I mean, if you can imagine a transit authority going out and saying, okay, I want you to look at the the route design, the service levels, the fare structure, marketing campaigns, and I'm going to give you six months to put a proposal together. This is how much money you have to spend. You tell me what money, what revenues you bring in and give me your plan. By the way, I'm not paying you for any of that. That's just part of the price of business development of trying to get those contracts. But the reward of it is if you get one of those, they're long-term contracts. They're 10 years, 20-year contracts. Sometimes there's capital investment involved. Sometimes there's an in many of the contracts, it's actually a shared corporation in which there is a a a private sector and public sector within a transit corporation. And the question is ownership share. The public entity is a 40% owner of this entity or something like that. So it's a different structure, but in Europe, most systems are operated by the private sector. And there's heavy involvement on the policy end and and the budget end and stuff with the, the public sector, but it's much more a collaborative partnership. Yeah. Um, and, and we have some examples of that here. Nassau County for us is an example of that. You, you've seen elements of that in, in even like a foothill and, and some of those kind of contracts. 
but it, it's it hasn't caught hold here like it has in Europe. Interesting. It has for years in Europe. Yeah. So it's almost like in my mind, Dick, tell me if I'm thinking this right. It's like taking the the P3, the public-private partnership approach to big capital projects where it's not prescriptive. So, for instance, when I was at MTA, we put out a bid for the Purple Line in Washington, D.C., and we basically said that here's how much money we have. Here's what we want to have the outcome to be, but you tell us how you're going to get there. And companies literally spent millions of dollars developing their proposals for us and doing all kinds of research, and we took the best elements from all their ideas and came up with the final contract, but still allowed them to, like you said, basically design the how. We told them the what. They, and so it's taking that approach from the capital side and moving it to the operating side, where now it's not just building a big bricks and mortar project, but it's running a transit system and not just the paratransit, the fixed route as well. And the approach is, is really to, to say to the private sector, if I'm the public entity, to say, this is what I want to achieve. I want access to jobs. I want to be able to serve communities that are underserved. I want to be able to one, two, three. What is it that you're trying to achieve? And so the bid process is designed around results and what you're trying to achieve, not simply a, a, a price or a prescription. In other words, let the private sector be creative. Unleash the creativity of the private sector to offer ideas. And of course, as the public entity, you can reject those ideas if you don't if you don't like them, if you don't think it's workable, if you think it's a bad solution, no skin off the private, the public sector to say, thanks for that, guys, but no thanks. I mean, yeah. that's that's part of it, right? right? But I will tell you that the the, the private sector will, will step up to that. They'll get creative. They'll get better and better at what they do because of that process. It can be an interesting way to, to do it differently. We have some systems out there that and an RFP will prescribe down to what time your supervisors will show up, what they'll be wearing, and define it to such a finite amount. It's like you're asking me to be a body shop, nothing more. Let us share the benefit of what we've learned by operating around the, the world and bring that to you. And if you like it, great. If you reject it, we understand. That's right. hard too. So. Great segue to our final question, which is you've hinted a little bit around NADA and this group, North American Transit Alliance, but let's actually spend a few minutes talking about it as we wrap up today's interview. So um, you're chairman of a group, the North American Transit Alliance, which is a new trade association here in North America. Tell us about it, kind of how it got started and what the role is of the group and who's in it. So that Thursday of my first week, when we were all in our COVID crisis, every one of our clients were in crisis, right? I mean, everybody was in crisis. And there was a cutting of services and this recognition that someday we'll be past this and we've got to keep our infrastructure in place and working. And if you're running streetcars, you still have to exercise the vehicles. If, you're, if you've, you've trained a lot of drivers, you, you don't want to lose that trained workforce. And so it was important. We were, as a private operator, in the same boat that public operators were in. And there was talk in Washington about the CARES Act and pulling money together to help transit authorities fund the kind of keeping of that infrastructure in place through the crisis. Keep employees employed, keep, keep the place 
ready for operation, even if it was op wasn't operating or was very reduced. One of the concerns we had is the way the legislation was written, it was unclear whether it gave public transit authorities to the authority to use that money to help the private sector as well. So if you were a system that was either 100% contracted or maybe 50% contracted, you wanted to keep that infrastructure in place as well for your private contractor. And quite frankly, the private sector didn't have the resources just to wholesale, okay, we won't, we won't lay anybody off, we'll, we'll just eat it. Just wasn't possible. I mean, the, the magnitude of the problem, and you got to remember the magnitude of the problem was global, not just the U.S. And so this was happening across the world. So the idea of NADA really kind of started, I, I think, I don't know how it actually started. I think it was a phone call I had with maybe Brad from First Transit, and then we expanded that with, with the other contractors to say, we need as an industry, as a private contracting industry, we need to make our voices known one, to support the CARES Act, because this is critical for our clients, and what's good for our clients is, is good for us, and two, to make sure that it's flexible enough that it can keep our, our operations intact as well. And the idea just was, uh, it was an immediate yes from each of the major contractors. So it's it's the six major contractors um, out there. It's It's Transdev, it's First Transit, it's MV, it's RATP Dev, it's National Express, and it's Keolis. And so, so we got together on a phone call and said, look, we need to help this legislation. And so we contacted APTA and said, we're forming this group. We want to work with you to lobby Congress. We uh, hired a lobbyist. We had a lot of in-kind help from the various organizations to set this up. And and we were successful in getting FTA interpretation, interpretive language that said, you can use this money to keep your operations going, whether it be private sector or public sector that's operating that. It was successful. We're not out of the woods yet, as we all know. And now we have the HEROES Act out there and some other legislation. And you know, we all said that this is important. We all have an interest that together, even though we are fierce competitors and we are fierce competitors, we have some commonality in our interests and we should create NADA as a means of promoting that commonality. And the COVID crisis is a great example of successfully bringing the interests that serve all of us. And, and so as we got going with it, and, and we meet like every two weeks now, we find a lot of other common ground. And so we all decided this is a good thing. Let's keep it going. And so I, I'm chair. Brad is is vice chair, First Transit. We'll rotate the leadership of this group. And we think that there's a lot that people don't know about private sector involvement in transit that we could help promote and help help people understand the value that we can bring to this industry. And so NADA will, will continue forward, even past the COVID crisis, once we get past it, really trying to, to accentuate and, and to communicate what those, those advantages are. You know, some of the things we, we talked about earlier, 
And so, so NADA is now a, a permanent, a permanent organization. Right now, it's made up of just the six largest. I think as time evolves, it'll expand its membership. We, we wanted to keep it small initially because we, we just had we had to work so quickly through this crisis and, and being there for the legislation. But the organization will grow and evolve over time. Yeah, it's kind of not dissimilar, I think, from you know a trucking association or an airline association. In the airline industry, those airlines are, are fierce competitors, but we all they all come together in their airline association to work for legislation and promote things that are good for the industry. So that's great. Wow. What a, what a great wide-ranging interview. This has been one of the best I've ever done, Dick. You, we've really gotten practical, but also a little esoteric to talk about concepts and principles of public transportation. I know there, to, to kind of wrap it up, I know there was a fear on some people's part about the future because we are in this unknown era. Uh, and what you, you've kind of laid out for us, I think, a clear direction that public transit is going to remain a viable part of our society, but its role may change, right? So why don't you just wrap it up with talking about your vision of what, how you see public transportation in general adapting to this new environment going forward? Well, as I said, I think there's going to be a new standard for how you value it, and the value proposition will change. It'll be things like environment and mobility and access to jobs, and it'll be, it'll be viewed differently. And I think it will be a, a much more diverse set of delivery systems. I think the days of, of public transit is a is a is a an accessible forty foot bus or a body on chassis van. Those will still be there, but it will be supplemented with a lot of other mobility delivery systems, and and that's fueled by demand. I always say that we're becoming a demand culture now. You know, public transit used to be, here's a schedule. This is what time the bus is going to be here. If you want to use my service, you'll yeah. be there at that time, right? right. So, so it was really, we defined for the consumer what was available. Now the consumer, and, and quite frankly, it's, it's the smartphone that has allowed that. Now the consumer gets to tell us what I need, when I need it, and how I'm going to use it. And that's a whole change in orientation for our industry. And it is, it's what makes this really exciting right now, because once we get that, how we design our systems and the types of services we provide and the partnerships we form will all be different, but it'll still be seamless because technology allows it to be seamless, even though you're using this diverse array of of scooters and Ubers and, and micro transit and 40-foot buses and whatever, rail, it'll all be seamless because technology allows us to do it. And then from there, I think it, it evolves even more. The idea of headways may go away. If you can measure demand in real time, how you even run that 40-foot bus down the middle of the street may change and may be much more demand-based because you have the ability to know where your customers are, when they are in real time, and then serve that need in real time. So I think it's it's going to change really dramatically, but I think it's going to be more and more a key part of people's lives, not less and less. It's just going to be different. Indifference fun. It's exciting. 
Dick Alexander, CEO of TransDev. Thanks so much for being our guest today on Transit Unplugged for a, a wide-ranging but also in-depth look at public transportation, the role that private contractors play, and what the future of our industry is. Thank you so much for being our guest. This has been an outstanding interview. I can't wait for people around the world to hear it. Thanks, Paul. You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.